Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 4, 2 Samuel chapter 3. Well, chapter 2 of 2 Samuel established David God's man as king over Judah and he'd set up his headquarters in Hebron. But he had no mean by no means had he consolidated his his power uh, over all of the clans that represented even the the Hebrews that lived in the south of of Canaan. And while much of Judah in- instantly accepted him as their monarch, the tribe of Simeon was also undoubtedly brought under David's sphere of influence, although Simeon's not mentioned. All right, and is thus treated as kind of an afterthought. Now the tribe of Simeon was alive and well. But because their territory was as a result of um, that curse upon them by Jacob, completely surrounded by Judah. Look at this map here. All right, they're like a bullseye in the middle of a target. All right, and so they had virtually no chance to establish themselves as a tribe of any consequence. Thus we will see, uh, thus we're going to get only snippets of information um, about Judah from, from time to time in the coming books as their significance as a viable tribe um, ebbed and flowed and, and always seemed to remain precarious until actually sometime after uh, Hezekiah. when they more or less disappeared altogether. Now, it's not like some genocide uh, upon them happened. Rather, it was just a variety of circumstances that caused them to slowly assimilate, mostly into Judah, uh, just as a matter of practicality. Many of Simeon hung on to their tribal heritage as, as a matter of family pride, but their allegiance and their livelihoods were generally attached to Judah. Now, at the end of chapter 2, we saw a blood feud established between Avner, Ishbosheth's military commander and the de facto power of the northern tribal coalition, and Yoav, that's uh, David's military commander. He was the son of David's sister, Zeriah. Well, Yoav's younger brother, Azahel, was killed by Avner when, after an incident at a place called the Pool of Gibeon that lay on the border of Benjamin and Judah, Azahel chased after Abner with intentions to end his life. But Abner came out the victor. And thus was established a family vendetta against Abner. Now I want us to pay special attention and note that in this chapter and really all the books that lay ahead of us, we're going to see a steady degradation and corruption in how the Torah is applied in the national life of Israel and in the the lives of individuals such as David. And this is why studying the Torah is so important in the first place Because how can we recognize the corruption and misapplication of something that we know nothing about? Even behind this blood feud 
between Abner and Joab. We see a twisted logic emerge that causes Joab to view his intention to seek revenge on Abner as his legal duty. And perhaps, maybe it was even, in his mind, pious before the Lord. And when we get to Abner's death at Joab's hand, we're going to discuss this a bit more extensively. But for now, let me just say that Joab takes on the role as his family's Goel Hadam, the blood avenger. Which, within certain boundaries, is actually sanctioned by Jehovah and the law. Recall that there were six cities of refuge that were ordained, were ordained by the Lord and set up throughout Canaan so that people could escape to the nearest of these sanctuaries and be protected from the wrath of a blood avenger who could legally kill this person who had caused the death of the avenger's family member. The other thing we need to take notice of is how the Lord uses the will of men to achieve His will, even though they aren't even aware of it. We really don't see the narrator in these chapters about David making it a regular point to say that the Lord caused this or the Lord caused that. Rather, we see men taking actions that on the surface appear to be totally independent, personally willful with the intent of fulfilling their own agendas. And yet, as it all unfolds, we see the divine master weaving these decisions and actions of various men into a perfect fabric and advancing his purposes with the participants largely unaware of it. This is a mysterious biblical pattern that we've seen since Genesis. We observed it in very dramatic fashion as the Lord used Pharaoh's stubborn heart that was thoroughly against God to achieve the deliverance and liberation of his people, Israel. And I was reminded at dinner with friends the other evening, this dynamic of God is really the most prevalent and operative manifestation of him in our lives and in the world today just as it's always been. What routinely goes on in our own daily lives, in the lives of those who govern over us, the lives of those who teach us, and in all we come into contact with, all of this is, in one way or another, playing a role in an outcome predetermined by the Lord in eternity past. It's just invisible to us unless we occasionally pause to look back and we recognize it for what it is. And then when we do that, we also need to pause and give praise and glory and honor to Him alone who could do such a thing. So let's open up our Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 3. 2 Samuel chapter 3, which is uh, page 336 if you have a complete Jewish Bible.
2 Samuel chapter 3. The war between the house of Shaul and the house of David dragged on, but David grew stronger with the house of Shaul becoming weaker. Sons were born to David in Hebron. His firstborn was Abnon, whose mother was Ahinoam from Yisrael. His second, Kilav, whose mother was Abigail, the widow of Nabal from Carmel. The third, Avshalom, whose mother was Ma'acha, the daughter of Talmai, king of Gesher. The fourth, Adoniah, the son of Hagit. The fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Avital. The sixth, Yitriam, whose mother was Eglah, David's wife. Now these were born to David in Hebron. And during the war that was going on between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner strengthened his position in the house of Saul. Saul had had a concubine named Rizpah, the daughter of Ayah. And Ish-bosheth challenged Abner, Why did you go and sleep with my father's concubine? And these words of Ish-bosheth enraged Abner. What am I, he shouted, that you treat me with such contempt? A dog's head in Judah? Till this moment I've shown only kindness to the house of Saul, your father, and to his brothers, and to his friends, and I haven't handed you over to David. Yet you choose today to pick a fight with me over this woman? May God bring terrible curses on Abner and worse ones yet if I don't accomplish what Adonai swore to David to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and Judah from Dan all the way to Beersheba. Ishbosheth couldn't answer Abner a word. He was afraid of him. Abner immediately sent envoys to David with this message. Who's going to control the land? If you'll make my, yourself my ally, I will use my power to bring Israel over to you. And David sent this reply very well. I will be your ally on one condition. You will not come into my presence unless at the same time you bring with you Michal, Saul's daughter. And David sent messengers to say to Ishbosheth the son of Saul, Give me back my wife, Michal. I betrothed her to myself for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband Paltiel, the son of Laish. And her husband went with her crying as he went and followed her to Bachurim. But there Abner told him, Go back. And he returned. Then Abner conferred with the leaders of Israel and he said, In the past, you wanted David to be king over you. So, do it. For Adonai has said of David, Through my servant David I will rescue my people Israel from the power of the Philistines and from the power of all their enemies. Abner also spoke with the people of Benjamin. Well, then Abner went to Hebron and reported to David everything that had been agreed to by Israel and the house of Benjamin. And when Abner came to David in Hebron, he brought 20 men with him. David held a feast for, for Abner and his men. And Abner said to David, I must now get up and go to gather all Israel to my lord the king so that they can make a covenant with you. Then you will be able to rule over everything your heart desires. David sent Abner off, giving him safe conduct. Just then... David's men and Joab returned from a raid, bringing a lot of plunder with them. 
But Abner wasn't with David in Hebron because he had sent uh, he had sent him off under safe conduct. But Joab and all his army, uh, when when Joab and all his army arrived, Joab was told. Abner, the son of Ner, came to the king, but he sent him off and he's left under safe conduct. Yoav went to the king and said, What have you done? Here, Abner came to you. You sent him away. Now he's gone. Why? You know Abner, the son of Ner. He came here only to deceive you, to learn what campaigns you're planning, to find out everything you're doing. And after leaving David, Yoav sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the water cistern at Sirah without David's knowledge. Upon Abner's return to Hebron, Yoav took him aside into the space between the outer and the inner city gates as if to speak with him privately. There he struck him in the groin so that he died, thus avenging the death of Asahel, his brother. And afterwards, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever innocent of this death of Abner, the son of Ner. Let it fall on the head of Yoav, all of his father's family. May Yoav's family always have someone with a, with a hemorrhage or tsarat, or who has to walk with a cane, or who dies by the sword, or who lacks food. And thus Yoav and Avishai, his brother, killed Abner, because he had killed their brother. Azahel during the battle in Gibeon. But David said to Joab and all those with him, Tear your clothes, you put on sackcloth, you mourn over Abner. And King David himself walked behind the body as it was carried. They buried Abner at Hebron. The king wept aloud at Abner's grave, and all the people wept. And the king sang this lament over Abner. Should Abner have died like a thug? Your hands weren't tied. Your feet weren't fettered. You felt like one who falls at the hands of criminals. Then all the people wept over him more than ever. All the people came to David and tried to make him eat some bread while it was still daytime. But David swore, May God bring terrible curses on me and worse ones yet if I taste bread or anything else until the sun goes down. All the people took note of this and it pleased them. Whatever the king did pleased all the people. So that day, all the people and all Israel understood that the king had no part in the killing of Abner, the son of Ner. The king said to his servants, You realize that a leader, a great man, has fallen today in Israel. Even though I have just been anointed king, I feel weak today. These men, these sons of Zeruiah, They're too brutal for me. May Adonai repay the criminal as his crime deserves. Verse 1 sets the stage. Many commentators will say that what verse 1 is describing is civil war. Now this is a gross mischaracterization in my view. Indeed, there was an ongoing hostility between those loyal to David, those loyal to Ishbosheth. But generally speaking, there was not a declared state of war whereby armies were pitted against armies in pitched battles. Even that conflict between Abner's men and and Yoav's men at the Pool of Gibeon really started as more 
of an impulsive and rash gladiator-like competition, as deadly as it was, that got quickly out of hand. Not as enemies happening upon one another as they were each out on, uh, each out on seek and destroy missions. Okay. A, a cold war of sorts was underway between the North and the South. Certainly skirmishes between the two sides happened, but they ought to be visualized more as raids of one clan upon another clan with the purpose of stealing food and supplies and, and, and valuables from the other side. People were killed. But this was a battle of wills for the hearts and minds of the people. And it required an intimate knowledge of the culture and a very heavy helping of finesse, much more than military force. This is because there were unspoken limits on the actions that could be taken and just how wide or permanent any kind of disaffection between the Israelite clans and tribes might be. After all, all Israelites shared a common family bond. And in the end, that had much to do with their ability to kill one another or, or pillage from each other on one day and on the next day become allies. That's tribalism. Let me see if I can give you an illustration of those circumstances in David's day by using one in our time. <clears throat> Notice how in the Middle East in the Far East, our modern militaries are forever stymied by these tribal armies who have little technology, use primitive strategies, and employ mostly basic armaments to fight with. And also notice how on the diplomatic side we see this constant frustration and bewilderment of our ambassadors and their government officials who although trained at our elite universities like Harvard and Princeton and Berkeley find themselves constantly outmaneuvered by these primitive tribal leaders who seem to change loyalties at the drop of a hat. Everything is a moving target that can morph from friend to foe and back to friend again with little more than the right words uttered and a customary bribe. Or just as problematic, some sacred site is violated or some cultural custom or family honor is stepped on, none of which we even knew mattered. Loyalty shift again. Westerners have little respect, little regard, even less understanding for the centuries of history and long-standing blood feuds and immutable cultural traditions and vague family ties that are the driving force behind all these decisions and actions. Thus our generals are discovering what David knew. There are limits as to what pure force can achieve. And the outcome is never going to be well-defined and neat as were World Wars I and II. Rather, what we are witnessing is a never-ending process of jockeying for position that's 
part of the fabric of tribal society. And until tribalism is replaced with something else, nothing's going to change. Thus we're told in 2 Samuel that as the war dragged on, the house of Saul diminished, the house of David grew stronger. See, this is speaking of relative strength. An ebb and a flow. Not a clear-cut victory or a permanent shift in power and control from one government to another one. What this means is that the clans were positioning themselves to side with the eventual winner. They needed to be allied with the current strongman, Ishbosheth, but they had to also be ready to change over to the emerging one, David, in a heartbeat. And from an earthly standpoint, this so-called war between David and Ishbosheth was not a contest between ideals and philosophies or ways of life. This was about prosperity, security, status. And the weak and ineffectual Ishbosheth could not measure up to what the charismatic and highly regarded David had to offer. From a heavenly standpoint, the Lord was merely allowing men's evil inclinations to bring about his determination that David would become God's earthly representative over all of Israel, God's earthly kingdom. Well, verse 2 starts to, to trace the establishment of David's house, his family. Now, it's gone through a number of stages beginning with his marriage to Michal, Michael, Saul's daughter, only to have her taken from David and given to another man by a vengeful Saul. Later, during David's self-imposed exile from Canaan as Saul sought to kill him, David married the widow of Nabal, Abigail, and also another woman named Ahinoam from Jezreel. Now that David is king and he's taken up residence back in Judah at Hebron, it's time to assemble a royal harem. Thus, all of these sons we see mentioned come from various women, but they're all born in Hebron, David's capital city. Now, the preeminent son was Amnon, his firstborn, whose mother was Ahinoam. Amnon means faithful. True to form, the second son was born to his other wife, Abigail, and his name was Kilav, which means the father prevails. Next was the infamous Av Shalom, Absalom, the father is peace, who was born to Ma'aka, a Geshurite woman, a foreigner. Now let me just uh, pause to remind you that the kingdom of Geshur was currently under Ishbosheth's influence, and Geshur was prominent in Abner's step-by-step plan to reestablish Saul's kingdom for. Ishbosheth. So here we see David marry this woman for obvious political reasons. 
to establish a political and familial bond with Gesher in order to outmaneuver Ishbosheth. This is why we're told that this Ma'acha was the daughter of the king of Gesher. Next born was Adoniah, Adonijah. Yehovah is Lord. And then Shephatjah, which means Yehovah is judge. And then finally, Yitre'am. And there's no real assurance on just what that name means, so I'm not even going to give you a guess. We're told that Yitriam was born to Eglah, David's wife. So while we can't be 100% certain, it's likely that some of these women mentioned in this short list were wives and others were concubines. Those who were official wives were so for the purpose of creating political alliances. The concubines may have been personal handmaidens of some of those wives or simply women that David found especially appealing to him or some combination of both. In any case, constructing a harem was the Middle Eastern custom. It was expected if David was to have the proper status as a a king. And, And while having a harem doesn't necessarily violate the letter of the Torah law, it certainly violates the spirit of it. Let me also point out that while each mother is associated to a specific son of David, this in no way means that this is the only child that each one of them produced. Each woman would have bore several children. It's only that these listed were the firstborns, meaning the first males born to each of these mothers. And understand that this also means that David would have had a lot of children in a very short time. And several would have been right around the same age. And this is going to play quite a role in some of the antics that we see in later chapters about David's unruly family. Now verse 6 explains that the hostilities that as the hostilities continued Saul's house was weakening and the already powerful Abner gained even more control in Ishbosheth's administration. And in a show of his absolute power that was greater than that of King Ishbosheth, we get this brief story about Abner having a sexual relationship with a concubine of Saul's harem that had now been inherited by his son Ishbosheth. By the way, it was standard that when a king died or he was deposed, his harem would become the property of the next king. Rizpah was a prominent woman, played a prominent role in the harem. In fact, in the second chapter, uh, Second Samuel chapter twenty-one, we're going to read about her as concerns the story of the Gibeonites' revenge against the house of Saul. No doubt it was her visibility and status that is why of all the women in Saul's old harem, Abner went after Rizpah. Now the thing that Abner did was terribly serious. See, for a person to indulge in the king's exclusive harem, and especially with a woman of Rizpah's status, was a claim to power. Recall 
that Jacob's son Reuben did essentially the same thing by having sex with Jacob's concubine Bilah. And the result was that Jacob removed the firstborn inheritance rights that should have been Reuben's. By the taking of Bilah, Reuben essentially announced he was taking control of Jacob's family. This was treason. And Jacob reacted very harshly. Abner was letting everyone know unequivocally that he may not have held the title of king, but he was the unassailable power of the northern tribes, not Ishbosheth. So when at the royal court, Ishbosheth called out Abner publicly for doing this deed, Abner became enraged and he literally shouted at the king, something that is just not done. Our complete Jewish Bible and many other Bible versions say that Abner screamed, What am I? The head of a dog of Judah? Now even though we can kind of get the gist of this, that he this means that Abner was deeply insulted, much of that phrase doesn't even exist in the original. It does speak of Abner saying, What am I? The head of a dog. But there's nothing at all in it about Judah. See, in Hebrew, Abner asks if he's a Rosh Kelev. And that's an unusual epithet unique in the Bible. So some early translators thought there was an error. And it should have said Rosh Kalev, head of Caleb. And since Caleb was a prominent clan within the tribe of Judah, they kind of twisted it all around and came up with head of a dog of Judah. That's how it happened. Now, we're going to often see this derogatory meaning of the term dog in the Bible. The best way, I think, to help you understand this is that its intent is to be seen as the polar opposite of lion. Okay? A lion was regal and strong and proud and to be feared. All very good attributes. A dog was unclean, weak, worthless, fit for nothing but to roam the streets and to eat garbage. All bad things. So dog also became a common term applied to a homosexual male in that era. Which was one of the greatest taboos for the Hebrews and most Middle Eastern cultures. In any case, Abner went on to say that he had shown Saul and his house only chesed, the greatest unmerited kindness and grace, by allowing Ishbosheth to be the king. What an amazing put down. But then go, Abner goes on to make an amazing confession. He knew, as many knew, that the Lord intended David to be king over all of Israel. In verse 9, Abner speaks of knowing that Jehovah made some well-known pronouncement that David was his choice to be king over both Judah and Israel and all the territory from Dan 
And that tribe was now residing at the foot of Mount Hermon, way up north, all the way south to Beersheba in the southern Negev. Further, that Abner says that he now intends to give David Ishbosheth's kingdom. Well, Ishbosheth was so in, intimidated, says he didn't even utter a word in response. He knew full well that Abner was absolutely able to do everything he had just threatened. There's nothing he could do about it. Now we're going to see other references in this and in later chapters to people being aware of the Lord's decree that David is to be king over all Israel. But we're not going to find such a public decree or even one made directly to David in the Bible. So it's probable that for some reason this divine decree was probably announced by Gad or maybe Samuel and written in a document, although that document well known in that era, it's become lost to history, just like the book of Jasher. We see that Abner was well aware of it, Ishbosheth was aware of it, and it was apparently common knowledge among the people, or at least the elders, of both Judah and Israel. So why wasn't David immediately installed as king upon Saul's death? Because people just don't always want what God wants. We have our own goals and agendas, schedules. Sometimes the Lord's ways and His timing are a fly in the ointment. We irrationally think that perhaps we can postpone the inevitable or advance His schedule or that the Lord will look the other way, maybe make an exception for us. Everyone who had the ability to install David as king seemed to know about this divine decree and so they all bore guilt for not fulfilling it immediately. On the other hand, David, who of course knew about it as well, sensed that he was not to take extreme measures to put himself into power, even though the Lord had ordained it. Rather, David figured that if the Lord ordained it, the Lord could accomplish it. And it is this attitude that was one of several of David's characteristics that, though not always present in David, nonetheless endeared him to the Father. Now, this is not a biblical principle that essentially demands our passivity where God's will has been made known to us. That is, we don't just pray and then sit on those same prayerful hands and wait for God to move. David was anything but a passive man. Heaven may be our future. But earth is where we are now. And on earth, physical actions required of us. If David was going to be king, much was going to have to be lined up and ready for him to rule. And since King Saul wanted him dead, first thing he had to do was remain alive. So, David moved around to survive. He made alliances, he built coalitions, he severed some relationships. 
He learned the art of warfare, taught it to his army. He brokered treaties. He gained the favor of powerful men who supported him. And he ruled fairly and steadfastly over the relatively small group that was in his charge. This was all in preparation for him to become king. But he never took the step of deposing the current king or killing a king to take his place. How the throne became vacant and the circumstances came together that finally sat him on that throne were in the Lord's providence. So the principle that David demonstrates for us is this. Pray. Actively prepare. Be still and be available. And then boldly step across that threshold when God opens the door. That's the principle. In verse 12, Abner wastes no time in carrying out the vow he made against himself that if he failed to act to install David as king of the north, that the Lord should do terrible things to him. So he sends emissaries to David to see if the king of Judah is open to a treaty, and David responds that he will be Abner's ally on one condition, that Michal is returned to him. Now David uses a phrase that was rather standard for the Middle East at that time, but has a wonderful, and I'm certain intended, parallel to something David's greatest descendant would say a thousand years later. And that phrase is, you will not see my face. And then goes on to precondition receiving Abner's overture by saying that Michal must be returned to him. Now face is panim in Hebrew. It means presence, personal presence. It's a term that those in authority, those who are royalty use. Now here David is saying he is not going to allow Abner into David's royal presence without this great wrong that was done to him by Saul being righted by Saul's successor. Listen to this interesting parallel that Messiah Yeshua of the required line of David will mouth as recorded in the book of Matthew. Matthew 23, 37-39 Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you kill the prophets. You stone those who are sent to you. How often I wanted to gather your children just as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings, but you refused. Look, God is abandoning your house to you, leaving it desolate. For I tell you from now on, you will not see me again, you will not see my face, until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. David was coming as Israel's king in God's name, ordained and set in place by God. Jesus Christ was coming as Israel's king in God's name, ordained and set in place by God. David wanted his bride returned to him by the representatives of Saul, the anti-king who held her hostage. Yeshua wanted his bride, all of redeemed Israel, to return to him after they had been held hostage by representatives of Satan, the ultimate anti-king. David would not accept peace with his brethren 
until his bride was returned as a show of good faith, Yeshua will not accept peace with his brethren until his bride returns as a show of good faith. Patterns, loved ones. Patterns. That's the key that unlocks so many Bible mysteries that really were not meant to be so difficult or contentious for us. Patterns. And yet, since in David's case, even though a show of good faith is the primary issue, just as it is for Yeshua, David is, after all, an earthly king. And so the ways of the flesh are necessarily involved. Getting Michal back solves an interesting political problem for David. Recall that David did not divorce her. But rather, the anti-king forcibly took her, gave her to another man. In David's eyes, although there was a forced separation, and Michal was indeed given to another, Michal was still legitimately his bride. Getting Michal back would serve several practical purposes. One of which was making David again part of Saul's house, part of Saul's family and dynasty through marriage to her. This, of course, was the whole point of Saul taking Michal away from David so that David would no longer be King Saul's son-in-law with all the rights associated with that position. By being legally bonded to Saul's family through Michal, David would add the legitimacy, at least by earthly custom, of having a right to the throne of Saul's old kingdom as his successor. Thus we read that David demanded Ishbosheth as the sitting king to return her, and he complied, no doubt, because Abner told him to. And we see Michal's husband, Faltiel, following her until he can go no further, weeping uncontrollably over her loss. Did he love her that much? Possibly. But Faltiel also has just lost his connection to Saul's family that David's gaining back. So there's a number of elements in play here. Now the rabbis have had some interesting debates about this incident. And it centers on whether or not David violated the Torah law by marrying a woman who was already married. Okay, after all, Baltiel didn't divorce Michael because she was merely delivered back to David in her current condition. And there's no way that Michal wasn't having sexual relations with Faltiel, and certainly some sort of ceremony had taken place to make it a marriage. But in the end, neither had there been a divorce by David. Basically, Michal and David were still married. David had paid the bride price. And it is salient that no mention is ever made of betrothal and payment by Baltiel to Saul for Michal. The betrothal ceremony had occurred, consummation was accomplished. That she was removed from David and given to another was more akin to kidnapping. Although it certainly wouldn't have been termed so in that era. Now had she refused to come back to David? That's another issue. 
Well, now that Abner has made the over of peace to the king of Judah and shown good faith by arranging for Michal to be returned to him, Abner has to lay some groundwork by talking with the various tribal leaders of the north to see where they stand on the issue of David becoming their king. And for then the reluctant ones, he needs to find a means to win their approval. So in verse 17, we have Abner saying to the various leaders of Israel, In the past, you wanted David to be king over you, so now do it. See, the translation, though, misses the emphasis. What is usually translated as in the past in Hebrew is temol shoshom, and it literally means yesterday and the day before. But here the phrase is gom temol gom shoshom, and it means time and again yesterday and the day before. In our Western way of speaking, over and over again you ask for this. Over and over. So the idea is that the northern tribes have been constantly complaining in Abner's ear for some time that they wanted David as their king. And probably well before Saul died and well before Ishbosheth was appointed king, they'd been complaining. And Abner says, well, the opportunity's here, so let's do it. And once again, Abner quotes some commonly known prophetic decree about David becoming king, and then he goes to talk with the people of Benjamin. Now, the little said about it, probably no one else but Abner, himself a Benjamite, could have convinced the elders of Benjamin to at least not openly oppose David. After all, the throne had belonged to the tribe of Benjamin up to now. And there was a lot of benefit and status associated with that. For Benjamin to voluntarily turn that kingdom over to David of the tribe of Judah, especially when Judah had never supported their man, Saul, and still didn't support his son Ishbosheth, well, that would have been a bitter, bitter pill to swallow. Well, with his political ducks in a row, Abner returned to David with a contingent of men to deliver to David the throne of Israel. A state dinner was held to celebrate the event and seal the deal. Okay? And with the agreement complete, all that was left was for Abner to return to the northern territory and assemble the recognized leaders who could speak for each tribe so that a formal covenant could be cut to unify the leadership of all 12 tribes under one king for the first time in history. David bid Abner farewell, guaranteed his safe passage home. I mean, after all, this was a very delicate time. Not everybody was going to be so pleased with this momentous new arrangement, despite the fact that Jehovah had decreed it and the people were aware of it. Well, we're going to examine the tragic aftermath of this meeting the next time we meet.